Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. Welcome to the 10 Adventures podcast. With me today is Karen. And uh, Karen, I know you're excited about our guest today, aren't you? I'm really excited because, you know, I've been following all these different people who have done this bike route, some of them, you know, as part of a tour, some of them self-guided, and it just looks epic, but it kind of looks scary. So I want to talk to someone about like what it actually feels like when they're doing it. I'm excited as well because I've been following this tour and other tours similar on, you know, social media and and on, on, you know, just looking how people do it. It's kind of one of the epic bike tours. Uh, What we're talking about today is the 12,000 kilometer Cairo to Cape Town bike tour. Uh, With us is Kristen Novak. Uh, She's the founder of Wild Public Relations, a PR company here in Calgary that focuses on travel, lifestyle, and other consumer uh, type clients. And she actually did this incredible bike tour, which uh, was four months, uh, 12,000 kilometers. Kristen, welcome to the podcast. We have Tons of questions about this because we're both so excited about it. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. It's so much fun to, you know, walk down memory lane and do this trip again in my head. So I'm excited to share all about it. And we're excited because, you know, we're also going to do the trip in our, in our head as well. To sort of start off, can you tell us a little bit about this bike route? You know, some people know a lot about it. Some people might just know, oh, Cairo is in Egypt, Cape Town's at the bottom of Africa. Maybe just share a little bit of the details about this trip. Yeah, you got it. So uh, the Tour d'Afrique goes through 10 countries in Eastern Africa. So it goes through Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, Zambia, Botswana, Namibia, and South Africa. And you're really going through um, all types of terrain through the entire thing. But it really is, it's top to bottom, um, the whole route through Africa. It's unbelievable. And what inspired you to do this ride? You know, I think a lot of people look at it, but you actually took the next step and actually did it. What got you to actually go in on this trip? So I did it in my early 20s. I was 22 and I turned 23 on the trip. I have a very adventurous family. I grew up in Colorado. I'm Canadian, but I grew up in Colorado. So I've always been around the mountains. I've always been doing adventurous activities with my family, literally since pretty much I was born. And so when I got out of high school and got into university, I felt the pull to start doing some more adventures and start seeing the world and traveling the world. And in 2007, I heard about the Camino de Santiago and I did that trip along the main route. And while I was on that trip, I was emailing back and forth with my parents and my mom shared with me about the Tour d'Afrique. And she said she'd heard of someone that had just done it. And it was starting the January following my trip. And I was in the doing the Camino in September. So it was just a few months later and my mom was like, what do you think? And I was like, that sounds incredible. I'd love to be able to do it. And I can't remember if she signed me up when I was in Spain still or when I got home, I signed up right away. But I was just like, I got to do it. This sounds unbelievable. And I, I didn't have a career yet. I didn't have anything to tie me down. So I was just like, let's go. Let's go have an adventure. So you did it with your mom. I did part of it with my mom. So my mom joined me about halfway through and she came for, I want to say about a month. I can't actually recall how long she came for, but she met us on part of the route and did part of it with us, which was amazing. That was actually one of the best parts of it was being able to do that with my mom. I bet. And had either of you done big bike trips before? (laughs) Never. Oh my goodness. You're daring, hey? We're a little bit crazy. (laughs) 
we um we had definitely done like short trips like we growing up we would go like fly over to this is sounds so privileged now when I say this I can't even believe it but we'd go to like France and go on bike trips in high school and do that kind of thing but those were like a week-long kind of thing and you're riding from village to village and they're taking your bags for you and you're just like stopping and eating the baguettes and cheese so it's it was not what Africa was in any capacity it was much more civilized than um, this experience but that was really the only thing we'd never done anything super crazy like this before well you guys are tough did you have to do a lot to get ready to do it this is the craziest part I think I went on two bike rides before I went to Africa. Oh my goodness. Like I look back and I'm like, you're insane, Kristen. I can't even believe I did that. My my family jokes that I like to virtually train. So I think about it, what I could be doing in my head to train, but I don't actually do the physical work. I literally went on probably like two 60 kilometer bike rides before I went to Africa. And then a 60 kilometer day in Africa is a rest day. So it's ridiculous that I didn't train. If you are doing this trip, please train. You will have a way better start if you do. Well, that sounds like a reasonable uh, thing. So other than no training, which you don't recommend, were there other things you had to plan out or was a lot of it taken care of for you because you were part of a big group? Yeah, that's the wonderful thing about the Tour d'Afrique is they're very good at setting you up for success. So they have a very comprehensive list of what you need down to like how many spare uh, tubes you want to bring for your tires and how many spare spokes you want to bring. So it's, they're excellent at giving you the details on what to pack, but it, it does take some preparation because you're going for four months. You're going to a foreign country. There's visas you need to organize. There's various vaccines and stuff that you have to get. You have to show those um, on different entries to various countries. So there's a lot of prep work, but it's you're supported in that and you feel very confident going over there knowing that you have everything ready to go. So then you started in Cairo. Do you remember like how it felt when you showed up, you know, to the first day? Like I would imagine I'd feel like really nervous. Oh my gosh. As I was trying to get over there, so even just the start of the trip was a little bit wild. I missed one of my connections. I only had like a 45-minute window, missed a connection, ended up having to take an additional flight. So it took me three or four flights to get there. And then because I'd missed a flight, I didn't have a pickup scheduled. My pickup was supposed to be like five hours earlier. I got to the airport. Fortunately, another person from the tour was arriving at that time. So I was able to get to the hotel without a problem. The next day was just a one-day break before the tour started, so we used that day to go out and experience things, and I went and did a tour of the pyramids on a camel and just got out to see a little bit of the scenery, but then it was like first thing the very next morning, I can't even remember what time, probably 6 a.m. or something, and we were all outside of our hotel on our bikes. It was super dark, and it was just like, all right, here we go. There's a group of like 60 of us. You got the literally the pyramids in the background, and we took a photo, and it was just like, hit the road, let's go. So it was a very, you're just, you get there, and you're in it, and you're just doing it, and you don't even have much time to think about the experience. You're just like, let's let's rock and roll. I'm really interested on the group dynamics with 60 people. I know some people do the entire trip. Some people just come on for sections. Uh, I've done one kind of similar trip. And like during those two months, I think mine was two and a half months. I became like best friends with some of those people. 
is that the same aspect here that, you know, these become, you know, close life, lifelong friends? Absolutely. I think it was a little bit different for me only in the fact that I was 22. So I was the youngest rider on the trip. There were definitely some other people in their 20s, later 20s, more in their 30s, and then literally everything up into your 60s. So I think I def- it's funny, I actually connected really well with a couple of people that were a little bit older than myself, probably, I don't know, Debbie and Jamie and Harrison, they were all probably like 10 to 15 years older than me. Um, but there was another huge group of young people that really connected with each other too. So everyone, I would say on a whole, everyone got along really well, which is surprising when you have so many nationalities and personalities, but I think we all have a common interest in a love of adventure. And so that united everybody. I don't remember there being really any conflict or any issues in that sense. I think there were maybe like a little tiff here and there, but it was nothing that was overwhelming. And yeah, some of the people, I mean, when I was preparing for this conversation, I put a thing up on my Facebook and tagged, I think it was like almost 30 people from my trip that I'm still connected to. And I was just like, hey guys, I'm doing a podcast. I need to, you know, help jogging my memory. And I can't even tell you, like all of them were just throwing notes at me and remembering experiences and sharing memories. So there's, I think we are connected for the rest of our lives in that capacity. And I think we'll always have that to like back and share in common. And I know if I saw any of them again, it would be like, we'd give each other a huge hug and it would be such a, a fun time. So yeah, it's one of those things. We're definitely all connected. We definitely all keep in touch. It's more on a, like a Facebook level where you're just seeing people mostly more at a distance, but there are some people that are, you know, best friends to this day. Yeah. I guess when you're doing like such an epic adventure over such a long duration, you have lots of time to bond with people, don't you? You do. And you're going through such unique experiences together, like anything from, you know, being sick in the middle of nowhere and having no facilities. And so people coming out of their tents in the middle of the night to help you because you're this sounds awful, but, you know, throwing up in a ditch in the middle of a campground. You got people that are on a really tough day. I had one of the gentlemen, Clive, from my trip. He commented that we were going up the Blue Nile Gorge. He's like, Kristen, you were in a dark place coming up the top of that gorge. Didn't think you were going to make it. And he's like, I was just there with words of encouragement. So, I mean, we all supported each other on those tough days. We all, um, yeah, helped each other out mentally and the best part of it too is there was the truck. So there's trucks carrying all your gear the whole way. So it's funny. They, they kind of referred to some people as like the truck people. And then some people as the riders. Cause there were some people that tended to go on the truck more. And some people that were just like, I'm not ever doing the truck. I need to get, it's called EFI status every effing inch. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's a, a little bit of some funny stuff happening um, with the EFI riders versus the truck riders and that sort of thing too. But it's always, I mean, everyone was there to, to have fun to have an adventure and just to have a lifelong memory. So if you were having a bad day, you had the truck for backup so you could ride in the truck? Oh yeah. And there are certainly days that you woke up and you're like, I'm not getting on a freaking bike today. Like there's no chance I'm going to go sit on a bike and ride for 150 kilometers today. And you're just like, I'm going to go sit in the truck. I'm going to drink a coffee. and I'm going to watch everyone else do the work. So you, that's the best part is, you know, you have that option. And there's some days that it was a few days in a row that you needed to use the truck injuries or you're exhausted or like being sick, whatever it may be. So that was always an option for people. The other option too, is you, 
I mean, you're riding to your lunch stop. And so if by lunchtime you're like, oh, I'm just not feeling it today, you could hop on the truck at lunch. So there's always options. So you're not feeling overwhelmed with it every single day. You can stop and take a break and rest your body if you need to. Actually, that's interesting because I've, you know, I've looked at some of those trips and I was always a bit intimidated by the relentless kilometers that are kind of mapped out. But um, I guess if you knew that if you were having a bad day, there was a kind of a way out, that would be kind of nice as well. I totally felt intimidated by the amount of kilometers too, but I think if you need to just stop and rest your body, that's okay. There were two occasions on the trip where I just said, like, I'm done with this right now. And one of the times with with my mom, I can't remember which country we were in, but my mom and I just took off for two nights. We took a bus ahead, went and stayed in a hotel for a couple nights and just rested um, and then connected back up with the tour a couple days later. And there was another time actually in Namibia, I went off with... um, Again, Harrison, Jamie, and Debbie, and we went over to Swakopmund on the coast and just had, I think it was like two or three days of, we went boat riding and just enjoyed the ocean life and that kind of thing. So we just took off from the tour when we were just, it was too much and we came back. So I did that twice on the tour, actually. So there's always options. That sounds like a welcome relief uh, with uh, relentless kilometers going on. So I was curious, did you all ride together or do you split up and kind of everyone's going their pace? You totally split up. So what would likely happen is there are some of the really, really strong riders. They were always at the front of the pack and they would always get to the camp first. We'd always typically leave around the same time, all within probably like a half an hour window. Some people were leaving a little bit earlier. Some people were still packing up their stuff, but you'd leave and then you'd just, you'd go at your own pace. So sometimes you'd be connected with other riders. Sometimes you're riding by yourself, but there's always someone, there's a sweep rider in the very back. And I can't remember if there was a truck at the back too. I can't, I honestly can't remember, but there was always someone making sure that all the riders were in front of them. So you weren't feeling like you were stuck in the middle of nowhere and had no idea where you were going. There was always someone around and there were lots of tour supporters too that were on their bikes. So they were at different parts of the day. You'd see other people, other staff members that were helping you along too. So yeah, but everyone, you're totally go at your own pace. I mean, some people could finish a day in three hours and it might take other people six hours and that's okay. There's no, you have the whole day. There's no rush. So what was it like cycling in Africa? Like, I'm curious, like, what are the roads like? What was your reception like? Oh my gosh, I've got so much great stuff for you. So road, let's start with roads. Roads were really anything you can imagine. So in Sudan, for example, they we called them the washboard roads. It's literally like going over a washboard. Awful. And <laughs> Clive actually said this again to me on the Facebook post. He goes, I remember a conversation with Eugene. He said, you're getting the hang of that, Eugene. And he goes, I'm learning to do it. I'm not learning to like it. So <laughs> you're definitely on, I mean, those days, I think that was like at least a week or so that we were on those washboard roads. Those were horrific. We had crazy dust storms sometimes blowing through. So we'd show up at camp or literally... When you take off your sunglasses, the rest of your face is just dirt. We're riding on, oh gosh, in Botswana, there were this this road of like disgusting bugs everywhere with this green slime. And there was like cannibalistic bugs that would like come out and eat each other. And these bugs were all over the road. But then you had like these beautiful spots. Like, I can't even tell you, this is etched in my memory. The day in Malawi, we went through the, it's basically like a jungle and it was this downhill day. 
it must have been like 30 or 40 kilometers of downhill so you didn't have to pedal at all and I just got to literally take in the sights there were baboons in the trees there were monkeys running around it was just like the coolest coolest experience but you're really experiencing everything from like a typical road to um, a dirt path to no path at all in the middle of the desert to like highways along the highway sometimes to really anything you can imagine any type of train so the roads were yeah a little bit of everything so with, with the roads being so varied I would guess that would assume what kind of bike or what kind of tires you'd be uh, riding. Absolutely. And we, I think we brought a few different types of treads for tires. I had, I think most people had a mountain bike or a type of hybrid bike. You are not, the funniest thing about this is I'm not a, a biker. Like I don't bike generally. I'm not a huge biker. So I have a bike. I enjoy mountain biking, but I don't do a ton of biking. So I couldn't tell you. I had a Gary Fisher bike, but I couldn't tell you the type of bike. I couldn't tell you more specifics around it, but we did bring different types of treads. So when you're on like the slick roads, there was sort of that softer tread. And then when you're in like the really hard stuff, there was that uh, more nitty gritty tread. You'd change your tires out just depending on what terrain they were anticipating for the next little while. You got it. That's exactly it. Yeah. And then where were you staying in, in the nights? Oh, this is so cool. Like so many interesting places. So Everything from like beaches. So for example, up in Egypt, we stayed on the beach of the Red Sea. We stayed in the Dongola Zoo. We stayed next to a brothel. We stayed in a refugee camp. We stayed on the lawn of a Jehovah Witness church. We stayed on a boat, Chitimba Beach in Malawi, makeshift camps in the middle of the desert where there's literally nothing but dirt and you're setting up a tent. Truly any possible scenario you could envision, we stayed there. So you were mostly camping. Oh, yeah. So you're camping pretty much for four months. So you have to get your body ready to sleep on like a tiny little inch thick blow up mattress. Um, actually, not even a blow up mattress. They say not to bring those because if you poke something, then you're you're screwed for the rest of the trip. But yeah, you're sleeping in your tents. You are coming into like these beautiful cities every once in a while. So when that happens, you can book a hotel stay. Sometimes we're staying on the lawn of a hotel. So if they had extra rooms that night, you could book in with the hotel, have a nice shower, do that kind of thing. But you have to mentally prepare yourself that you're going to be mostly sleeping in a tent for four months. And what about food? It's so varied. So you're, you're really at the mercy of what that country tends to eat. I can't tell you how many stews we had of meats that I I truly don't want to know where they came from. I'm sure they were picked up from the side of the road sometimes. <laughs> My mom was telling me, I had totally forgotten about this, but we had like these pink power bars that they gave to us uh, just for fuel that my mom said tasted like cardboard. <laughs> but yeah, it was a lot of like every day we'd have like uh, oatmeal for breakfast, like they do a big thing of oatmeal. Sometimes they do other things too, but you could always count on oatmeal. Lunches, I remember there being a ton of sandwiches. They would go and get local meats and veggies and that kind of thing, and you just kind of build your own sandwich for lunch. Afternoons when you got to camp, they always had this massive soup. So you'd often go, you'd have your soup right after you finish setting up your tent while you're waiting for dinner. And then dinner, again, was really anything. So again, it's just based on what they have locally around. So it could be anything from, you know, spaghetti and meat sauce to stew to soups to local roasts, that kind of that kind of thing. 
Uh, and the nice part too is on our rest days, we're typically in more urban centers. So there's actually incredible restaurants and that kind of thing along the way. So we did go enjoy some excellent restaurants. I remember going, I can't remember which city it was, but there was like a Fairmont or something. This is the thing that surprises me about Africa that you never see is some of it is just as Western as Canada and the U.S. So we went to a hotel and had like one of their huge brunches with eggs and French toast and pancakes and just like stuffed our faces. I, one of the gentlemen too that I put on the Facebook post, he said, I forget where, Kristen, but I remember after some place, definitely after the Sudan, where chocolate bars suddenly could be found. You must have seen my eyes and you broke your Mars bar in two and gave me half of it, the fresh half. That kept me going for another week. So we'd, we'd find our treats along the way too. I'm interested in, in the rest days because I was looking at their current itinerary for the Tour d'Afrique. And there, it seems like there's about 20 rest days, which... Seems great. You know, my, my, my assumption is you can then kind of explore, you know, maybe go on safari or ex- explore kind of the highlights around there. Is, is that what you were able to do? Yeah. So rest days were awesome. It really depended on where you were at. I would say it, it varied. So some days we still might not be in super urban center. So those types of days, you're definitely just hanging out in the camp, catching up on sleep, reading, that kind of thing. But when we were were in more of the urban centers, often people would, um, this is where you'd go to the restaurants, you'd find internet, catch up with people back home, explore the cities. There weren't necessarily, you weren't really in places where you could go do like a safari or that kind of thing, for example, except I think further south, I can't, was it Botswana maybe? Um, We did a a flight ride, Bangu Delta. So we did a flight over that and got to see um, all the animals there. But there isn't really time to go off and do like a safari type experience. That said, when we went, so I did the tour in 2008, and that was right after there was a bunch of post-election conflict in Kenya. So our tour ended up having, out of the blue, a two-week break because we had to fly over Kenya. And so for those two weeks, everybody, so the 60 different riders went off and did different things. So some people went to Uganda and did the gorillas. Some people went and did a safari. I went and a couple other people came with me and there was, I think, a different group that did this too. We went and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, which is kind of shocking to me that just out of the blue, we're like, let's go climb Mount Kilimanjaro because we're here. But we did, and that was actually one of the best things I've ever done in my life. We did the six-day Mashami route on Kilimanjaro, and it was amazing. And then we went to Zanzibar after and went and did, like, a little beach resort thing for a few days. So that was a bit atypical, though. Most tours aren't getting a two-week break to go off and do whatever they want. But we got to, and I am actually so grateful for that because climbing Kilimanjaro is one of the all-time favorite things I've ever done. Were there things that happened that surprised you on your trip, things that you really weren't expecting? I think the biggest thing, because I was so young when I did it, so I was only 22, and I think I was still coming from the frame of mind that Africa is what you see in TV and the movies. So I was very surprised by how Western a lot of Africa felt, especially those major cities. They are very much like going to a major city in North America. There's normal grocery stores, normal hotels, normal restaurants. So that part really surprised me. I think one of the things that I didn't anticipate either in Egypt and Sudan, you the call to prayer happens every day, all day. So you're regularly stopping and hearing everyone stop and the big loud speakers go and everyone stops for prayer. 
Um, I've never seen anything like that in my life before. Yeah, but I think so much of it too is like the quintessential Africa that you you think about, like the the beautiful savannas, the all the local children that run up and they they love seeing the white people. They run up to you and they're so curious about you and they're interested in what you're doing. And then the typical things like the wildlife, the you know. Oh, the herds of camels. I forgot about that. There were herds of camels in Egypt and Sudan. That was so crazy. But yeah, it was, I think, I think the biggest surprise is just how much the urban centers felt like being in North America. That just surprised me so much. Interesting. And were there ever any times you were worried about safety or security when you were on the trip? Not particularly. I never felt really unsafe. The only time I personally had an experience was uh, actually the first day in Cairo when I went and did that tour of the pyramids on the camels. When as soon as my tour ended, my tour guide took me down an alley and tried to basically shake me down for extra money. And I was by myself. I didn't know anyone. I wasn't with anyone. And I was in the middle of this alley with this man I'd never met before. So that was the only kind of uncomfortable experience that I had. But I do have a couple other notes from people too that they shared with me. So there were issues a couple times with people with their visas where they had to go backtrack a couple days and get their visas sorted out. Not a safety issue, but more of just a inconvenience issue. Yeah. There was one time, I guess, so the day that we left Lusaka in Zambia, the right turn, this is where they said we headed over to Livingston. The Zambian police stopped us uh, because there was an issue with our entry visas. So apparently they had run out of receipts when we entered Zambia. So the immigration people had issued several entry visas on a single receipt, uh, which is not typical. And so I guess because of that, they thought that they were criminals and we'd like cross the border illegally. And so they held up our whole group. But fortunately, Ray, one of the gentlemen on our trip, was given a receipt that had him and his wife on it and a couple other people. So he was able to show the receipt to the officials and as soon as they saw that there were several names on the receipt, they let our group go. But initially, they had stopped us, and we didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, there was another time, I think it was, might have been around Zambia too. Zambia seems to be where we had the most issues. But when we were doing uh, exchange of currency, they tried to swindle a couple people. So they would take the money and like count it, and then they'd start like hiding the money. And then when we tried to get our money back, there was issues. And so the police ended up getting involved a couple of times. So they are, there are people there that know how to take advantage of Westerners and they know how to do some of those things. So you just have to be a little bit careful, especially with those at border crossings. But safety-wise, I, I never really felt unsafe except for that one experience in Cairo. And even then, I didn't super feel unsafe. I just yelled and you know, got myself out of the situation. So it's, Africa is so safe and so welcoming. The people are incredible. There was the first day in Sudan after we'd taken a 24-hour boat ride from Egypt. We came upon this little town. I can't even remember the name of it now, but they had this little shack that they called Fresh Fish, but it was spelled F-R-I-S-H. And the people there welcomed our entire group and didn't let us pay. So they covered food for like, what, 65 of us or something and said, no, 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 like, we welcome you to our country. We're so happy that you're here and just paid for all of our meals, which is out like just wild to this day that they would do that. So no, Africa is so safe for so many parts of it. It's just a, such a beautiful continent and such beautiful countries. Are there any um, 
memories, you know, like images that you get in your mind when you think back to that trip that like really stand out? I think the day we entered or the first day riding in Ethiopia always stands out to me because it was the first time that Africa looked like I thought Africa looked. So I remember looking out, it was like this beautiful savanna with these hills and this greenery and just what you'd envision for like giraffes and all these various animals to be roaming around. It just looked like what I thought Africa looked like. So that day, that first day in Tanzania always stands out for me for, for that reason. So just that, like, this is what I really imagined this trip was going to be like. That's exactly it. It's interesting because Egypt and Sudan feel very different than the other parts of Africa that we went through. They're definitely more, I think they're Muslim countries and there's definitely a different feeling towards women in those countries that you experience. Once we got out of the northern part of Africa and started moving into the middle and southern parts, it definitely started to feel more like that quintessential Africa experience. And that's where you start seeing literally like in Botswana, there were elephants on the road. So you literally have to stop for the elephants to cross. My mom said she saw a lion one time. This is when she was arriving in Dar es Salaam. She had to take a 10-hour bus ride to come meet up with us. And she said there were lions walking beside her on the highway. I didn't get to see any lions on the trip. But like, can you imagine just being on a bus and then there's lions? Like, it's wild. So it's... Yeah, that's the thing is you get to have these experiences that you would never in a million years have anywhere else in the world. I have a question, Kristen. So most people can't take four months off to a bike trip like yours, but were there parts of the trip that if people were looking for a shorter itinerary that you think, oh, this was a really special part of the four months? It's so hard because I think you have to think about what you want to get out of it. So like I said, the northern part of Africa is very, very different. So if you want more of that deserty feel, the tougher roads, that like that's where all the washboard roads are, that's sort of in the northern part of Africa. If you want to feel see more animals and that kind of thing, getting down into Kenya, Tanzania, and Botswana, especially, I guess Namibia, really all of it, what am I saying? so hard to choose because all parts of Africa are so beautiful and so different and you can't go wrong you really can't go wrong any section you choose you're going to have some of the best memories of your life so it's yeah I don't know what to say with that just do do all of it do the whole trip (laughs) just quit your job and do the whole trip and come back and find another job (laughs) that's usually usually the sign of a great trip is If it's like, actually, the whole thing was really good, what better way to spend a few months? Now, if if people are thinking like, they're like, oh, I've always wanted to do a trip like this. What tips would you give them? Obviously, you've mentioned train more than than two bike rides. Are there other things you think that you're thinking back? Oh, I wish I'd known this or I wish I'd done this before I'd I'd done my trip. Oh, gosh. Okay, well, the first thing I would say is book it book it and do it because I think when you look back on your life when you're older you're never going to regret doing something this adventurous and wild and crazy but I think the thing with this trip you have to go in knowing that it's not a normal trip you're not going on vacation so it doesn't feel restful it doesn't feel easy it is adventure at its finest so you have to go in with the expectation that you're not going to have the normal things that you would love to have when you're on vacation 
you're sleeping in a tent, making sure that you have, I guess making sure your gear is really good, making sure you have an excellent sleeping bag, an excellent mattress, a tent that's super easy to put up. Make sure you know how to put your tent up. You're putting your tent up every freaking night, so you need to have an easy to put up tent. There are some people that I remember having more challenging tents and every single day was a struggle for them. But yeah, I think the biggest piece of advice is just do it. Like, don't question it. Don't worry about it. Listen, I was 22 years old, so I was fortunate to have my youth, but I went in there not in shape, not being a rider, and I had one of the most incredible experiences of my life, if not the most incredible experience of my life. So I think it's put away the fear and just just do it. And know that the other thing, too, is know that you can break. Like I said, I mean, I took off to Namibia. My mom and I took off for a couple of days. So you aren't stuck on this trip. If you're having a hard time, if it's not feeling good for a few days, leave. Leave. Go check yourself into a hotel. Get ahead of the group. Have a couple of days to decompress and then meet up with them again. But, oh, my gosh, just book it. You won't regret it. You really won't. I think that's great advice. You know, so much, so many times we worry, can we do something? Oh, what if I take time off work? Can I get a month or two off in a row? But invariably when you do, when you do take the time off, it's just like so liberating not to, you know, it's great to do one or two week vacations, but to do something longer where you can totally decompress and do something epic. Like it's something we remember for the rest of your life where a lot of our holidays where we just, you know, go down to Mexico or, you know, just go for a week and, you know, somewhere else. Those aren't life-changing experiences, but it sounds like for you, this definitely was something that is, you know, critical in, in kind of who you are now based on doing this epic and challenging trip 14 years ago. Well, I think that's the thing, too, is you realize what you're capable of. Because I I mean, I never in a million years thought I was someone that could do an 11, 12,000 kilometer bike ride. But at the end of the day, your mind can do what you tell your mind to do. And so, yeah, it's just... My gosh, if I, if anyone is considering something like this or wavering on it, it's just, just do it. Please, please, please. You will never, ever regret it. But like I said, you have to know it's not easy. Like most days we're getting up at six o'clock in the morning. We're packing our stuff up into our little red box. You're hitting the road. As my mom says, you've done like 75 kilometers by like 1030 in the morning. So it's demanding. It's physically really, really challenging. But, oh gosh, the the memories and experiences that you take out of this for the rest of your life. Like, I know I will never regret spending the money, spending the time doing this. Actually, I like the phrase that you said, you know, like, just kind of conquer your fear and do it. Because I think one thing people struggle with for doing an epic adventure is time. But... I think the other one's fear too, like, you know, all the what ifs that start coming up. What if this? What if that? So uh, I thought that was a, a good point to make as well. And fear is such, it's such a natural emotion, but if you can bottle fear and use it to, to propel you into doing something like this, I mean... Yeah, and I think the other thing too is I connected with some people ahead of the trip. So if you're nervous, if you're worried about anything, you can ask the tour to connect you with other riders. So I remember talking to one of the women, Ashley, that was on the trip ahead of time, talking to her about how she was preparing. That honestly intimidated me a little bit because she was like training so hard and I was like, I've been on two bike rides, but I'll see you over there. But it's it's good to to chat with other people that are getting ready for it too, seeing what they're preparing for, how they're getting ready for it. So 
Yeah, I think that having the community that's doing it, I mean, you're not alone. You're going with like 60 other people to do this wild adventure. So just knowing you're not alone, you're so supported. That's the thing with the Tour d'Afrique, you are so supported. They have so much stuff for you. One of the things I always remember is they have these red boxes. Everything, all of your luggage goes into a red box. You have to pack so well to make sure everything fits in your little red box that goes on the bus. And every day you're packing your red box on the bus. But yeah, don't let fear stop you from having the most incredible experience of your life. Kristen, that is a great message where I think, I I wish everyone could hear that because there's so many things we don't do because of worry and all our best memories are where we put ourselves out there and try something that's more difficult. And I just want to say thanks for, for sharing this and just sharing how, you know, doing something you maybe hadn't thought you could do. There's so many people that, that have that same worry and that same concern. So uh, I loved hearing your stories and hearing about this trip, but most of all, just hearing, hearing that message. Uh, so thanks for being on the show today. Uh, it's just such a powerful message uh, that I know people, people need to hear. Well, thank you for having me. As I was saying to you guys in the preamble, I mean, I have two little babies now. Uh, We've been in a pandemic for a couple of years. So to be able to walk down memory lane and revisit this adventurous side of myself that's kind of been tucked away for the last few years has been um, such a privilege. So it's been so fun to be here sharing about this today. And yeah, again, my only, only piece of advice is just do it. Just do the thing. Do the thing. Take it and own it. It's so much fun. And 14 years on, I still have all these relationships with 30 plus people. So gosh, it's the best experience of my life. Excellent. And there's there's no better testament to a, a trip than that. So Bernie and Beryl, who were, I believe there were 65 on my trip, who are my favorite couple of all time, literally the coolest couple that you'll ever meet. They wrote a book about their experience called Rustico Riders Cycle Africa. And if you just Google it, it'll come up, um, R-U-S-T-I-C-O, Riders, Cycle Africa. Order that book. You can read all about the experience from them firsthand. Um, and yeah, they are the funniest people. So I anecdotes that are just hilarious. That book will make you laugh too. Bernie has a way of capturing things in a hilarious way. So yeah, go, go read the book if you want to know what it's really like. Excellent. And I'll put a link to this book. I I just found it on Amazon. I'll put that in the show notes as well as a link to the trip you did. Uh, Thanks again for being on uh, on the podcast. And hopefully you can get out on an incredible adventure with your little ones uh, here in the not not too distant future. That would be amazing. That's the goal. Thank you so, so much. Yeah, great hearing about it. Thanks, Kristen. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the 10 Adventures podcast. If you liked it, why not give us a review? Better yet, subscribe and get inspired again and again. Also, if you want to find your own adventures, why not check out 10adventures.com where you can use our free resources to plan your own trip or book a tour in over 60 countries and make your own epic memories on your next adventure.